0: Our Father reminded this morning of just a tiny verse, I believe it's in Luke 11, where Jesus, speaking to his followers, tells them, Fear not, little flock, for your Father is pleased to give you the kingdom. We are not to fear this morning, though we be a flock that is small, weak, foolish in the eyes of the world, assaulted on every side by the world and the flesh and the devil. You are pleased give us the kingdom. And The passage this morning tells us how that happens. How it is that you give weak and sinful and broken and wandering and straying sheep. The kingdom. All of It happens through a shepherd who has tasted death for everyone, that many sons may be brought to glory. Lord, I need to feel the good news this morning. I want to take pleasure in that truth. And I want that for everyone who have come out this morning. You are pleased. To give us the kingdom. Through him. Who was made for a little while lower than the angels. But now is crowned with glory and honor. Who by the grace of God has tasted death for us. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see, and open our hearts to embrace by faith the truth of the gospel this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. The human race is an extraordinarily complex organism. I was looking up on the internet on a site called the Joshua Project, which is a ministry of the U.S. Center for World Missions, which is located out in Southern California and tracks the gospel or the spread of the gospel to unreached people groups. And I learned that there are, as of very recently, 7.2 billion, with a B, people in this world who are gathered into 9,756 known People groups. 7.2 billion people gathered into 9,756 known people groups. And I might add, as an aside, that of these 9,756 known people groups, 4,083 or nearly 42% of the world's population are still classified as unreached. Meaning that there is no indigenous. Community of believing Christians with adequate numbers to evangelize their own people. In other words, lest we think that the job is done, I would remind you that the job is only half done. There is still so much gospel, mission, worldwide evangelism to take place. And so I would commend to you Cuba coming up in three months, of which there are still three spots open. I want you come out with us and help us to reach some people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's not part of my manuscript, that's for free. The scriptures recognize the diversity and the complexity of the human race. And this is evidenced by the fact that when we read the end of the story, when we get to revelation and we see finally the redeemed of of all ages gathered around the throne and worshiping the lamb we see that there are represented people men and women and children from every tribe and tongue and people and nation on the face of the earth revelation 5 9 in fact tells us that the blood of jesus christ has infallibly and intentionally purchased Men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. In other words, we're told from the outset of the book of Revelation that the purpose of God from all eternity in the atonement of Christ, the blood of Jesus was designed specifically to redeem representatives from this complex organism that is humanity. The blood of Christ and the the death of Jesus was designed specifically to redeem people from every one of those 9,756 people groups. Which tells us something about the nature of our God. God delights in the diversity and complexity of the human race. He likes people who aren't white. Middle American Bible Belt believers. He loves them. And so must we. But you know what? The scriptures also view humanity in much simpler terms than that. Of those 9,756 people groups and countless language groups and ever-changing geographic barriers and geopolitical nations, the Bible reminds us that there is in the end only one Race. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, the Apostle Paul told the Athenian philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17. See, all mankind, all 9,756 people groups are descended from one, from Adam, who is our physical head, who is our covenant representative before God at the dawn of human history. And the Bible tells us, Romans 5, that when Adam fell, we fell in him and with him. And so all of Adam's descendants, all of us, every member of those 9,756 people groups were born in a state of guilt. Sinners by nature and sinners By choice underneath the condemnation of the law and subject to the everlasting and righteous wrath of God. So while the scriptures affirm and even celebrate the diversity and the complexity of the human race, biblical anthropology is quite simple. All mankind is born in Adam and all mankind will die in Adam unless they are rescued in the second Adam, who is Christ. See, there is a light that shines into the dark history of humanity. There's a gospel of salvation. In his grace, God designed a new humanity. God predestined a new redeemed race from Adam's line. He began in the same way that he started. He began again, I should say, in the same way that he had started. He he began with a new Adam, a second Adam who was like the first in every way, only better in every way. This second Adam succeeded where the first Adam failed. He obeyed God in perfect righteousness. Rendering to God the flawless obedience that God required and thereby meriting or earning the blessing that the first Adam had forfeited by his disobedience. But the good news doesn't end there because he also, this second Adam, entered into our sin and into our fallenness and into our weakness, into our curse. And he suffered and died for sins not his own. As we read here in verse 9, he tasted death for sinners, absorbing in his own body and receiving in his own soul the wrath of God that was due to Adam and all of his fallen children. And by faith in this second Adam, by faith in the provision of his righteousness, and by faith in the provision of His atoning death for our unrighteousness. Men and women are rescued out of the line of the first Adam. And are brought into the line of the second Adam. They are rescued out of this covenant of law leading to death. And they are, they are brought into by faith this second covenant of grace leading to life. This twofold covenantal structure, right... On one hand, the covenant of law in Adam marked by works and by sin and by judgment and by death. And on the other hand, this covenant of grace in Christ and marked by faith and righteousness and life. This twofold covenantal structure forms the background of today's passage. Without it, we simply cannot make sense of what the author is doing. But with it, we can begin through the lens of of this structure, we can begin to see the beauty and the glory of this redemptive plan that he is unfolding for us. With it, we may see him. The second Adam. Who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God, he might taste death. For everyone, it's good news, but it's gonna take us a little bit to get at it. I see in this passage really three sections, okay? The first section, if you look down at the text with me, the first section, verses five to eight, describes a frustrated humanity. Humanity as it now is, suffering under the curse of the law, under the curse of sin. Far below the dignity and the dominion and the glory and honor which was bestowed upon us at creation. The third section, verses 11 to 13, it looks ahead to a new, redeemed, glorified humanity. Enjoying the everlasting blessings of God. Everything that was lost in the fall has now been restored to us. And in the middle... In verses 9 and 10, there is the link that chains together the frustrated humanity and the redeemed and restored humanity. In verses 9 through 10, it's the link between the humanity living under the the curse and the redeemed humanity living under the blessing. And in verses 9 through 10, we see who that link is. It is a second Adam. It is Jesus who by his obedience and by his sufferings and by his death is bringing many sons out of verses 5 through 8 and into verses 11 through 13. He is bringing many sons to glory. So let's look at the first section, the first division, verses 5 through 8. The author describes in those verses a frustrated humanity, a humanity that was designed for glory and honor and dominion, even above that of the angels. But which has at present lost its glory and its honor and its dominion. He begins in verse 5 by picking up the argument that he left off at the end of chapter 1. If you look back up at Hebrews one fourteen, he had said, are they, the angels, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those Who will inherit salvation. Right. Angels are the servants of God. For our good. And this statement was his conclusion. To the argument of chapter one. For which. Or for why the church to which he writes. Must not give undue reverence. Or undue attention to angels. Shouldn't give more focus to them. Than is biblically warranted. And certainly should not worship them. That was his point in chapter one. Rather, the focus of their attention must be upon Jesus, who is in every way better than the angels. Their worship should be focused upon Christ and on the new covenant which was revealed in him. Not in the old covenant that was revealed through them. And then in Hebrews 2, verses 1 through 4, he took a... A break. He he goes into a parenthesis of sorts and, and he, he launches into the first of five warnings against turning away from Christ and turning away from the new covenant gospel and neglecting the great salvation found only in Jesus. But in chapter 2 and verse 5, the author picks up the train of thought that was left off in chapter 1 and verse 14. He resumes the argument, this time asserting that the church should not pay undue attention to the angels, not only because Christ is greater than the angels, but also because in a certain sense, so is man. For he did not subject to angels the world to come. Concerning which we are speaking. The world to come. Right? It's not going to be given. The Father is not pleased to give the kingdom to angels. No, the Father is pleased to give the kingdom to you. That was the, that's the future. That's the destiny of man. It was the same way in God's original design. When God created the world, creation was subjected not to angels, but to man. When God created the world, he placed it in subjection to man. Genesis 1.26, then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Dominion over this world was not granted to angels, but to Adam and to his seed. Genesis 1.28, God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. But then Genesis 3 happened. Adam fell and because of his rebellion, God cursed man as well as the rest of creation and so genesis 3 ends with a much different note than genesis 1 and genesis 2 at the end of genesis 3 we see the king and the queen of the earth deposed from their earthly thrones driven out of the presence of god and deprived of the glory and dominion that they once possessed that is why as the author will write at the end of verse 8 We do not yet see all things subjected to him. The fact is, is that through sin, mankind, Adam and in him, us, lost dominion over this world. And we are keenly aware of that fact. That's not news. Every time that we see a loved one dying of cancer, we are aware that we do not have dominion over this world. Every time that we see tornadoes or hurricanes or earthquakes ravaging entire communities and leaving death and destruction in their wake, we are aware that we do not have dominion over this world. I was talking with a guy last week who was 12 years old when when news came to him in school that his dad out in Kansas had been killed by a tornado. He doesn't have to be told that we don't have dominion over this world. We see countless millions dying for lack of clean water and millions more dying for lack of adequate food. Thousands in West Africa dying from Ebola. We we are aware that we don't have dominion. I'm reminded of John Piper's description of humanity as one long conveyor belt of corpses. Each one giving testimony to the fact that the dominion which we once possessed has been lost. See, humanity is frustrated and all of creation groans under the curse because it appears that the design of God has failed. That dominion has been lost. And it's all our fault. But there is hope. There is an assurance that permeates this passage. The text is forward looking, isn't it? Verse five, it concerns the world to come and in verses six through eight the author quotes at length from psalm eight in which david is is gazing out at the at the heavens into the immensity of of the outer reaches of space and he's considering the moon and the and the stars which god flung out into the expanse and while contemplating the the vastness of heaven he's struck by two thoughts Number one, he's struck by the insignificance of man, right? He sees the stars and he sees the moon and and he is awestruck at the splendor and the glory and the majesty of the God who spoke all of this into existence. And he's aware, what what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you are concerned for him? Who are we? Next to the Lord who, who spoke, let it be, and it was. And yet He is. He is mindful of us. He is concerned for us. He has a plan for us. Which ought to strike as good news to many of you who are here this morning. David just assumes that it's true, and it is. Even though it probably shouldn't be. What is man that you are mindful of him, but he is? He cares for you. He's concerned for you. He is mindful of you. He has a plan for you. So David's struck by the relative insignificance of man, but then secondly, He remembers the dignity which God has bestowed upon man. You have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under his feet. And then the author of Hebrews adds this comment. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. Complete dominion over creation. Including the angels. That's why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6 3 that we will judge the angels. It's a mind blowing thought. You see how this fits into the flow of his argument, right? Don't pay too much attention to angels, they are ministering spirits sent out for the good of you who will inherit salvation. Don't worship angels. Worship him whom the angels worship, who is Jesus. Don't live by the old covenant law, which was given through the angels. We have received a new covenant gospel, which is as much better than the old covenant law as Christ is better than the angels. And don't give too much focus and attention to the angels because the world to come was not subjected to them. to them. It's been subjected to you in him who is the second Adam. So the best way to understand what what David is doing in Psalm 8 and what the author of Hebrews is doing in verses 5 through 8 is that they're reaching back to the original design of God in creation and they're remembering the dignity and the dominion which was ours by the will of God at the very beginning when he set us to rule over all that he had made as the crowning achievement of his creation. It is good, it is good, it is good. And then he says of us, it is very good. And then he's reaching forward to the destiny which God has in store for man. Which is a return to that glory and honor and dominion which was ours at the beginning. And so they're, they're reaching on the one hand back to God's design and creation. And on the other hand forward to the man's destiny and the new creation. And they're saying there's a hope and there's a link. And man will not be frustrated forever. And we will not be subject to cancer and tornadoes and dementia and Alzheimer's and death itself. In between God's original design and in between man's future destiny lies the frustration of human existence, an existence which is not presently marked by glory and honor and dominion, but by slavery and dishonor and judgment and a curse, which is the meaning of the beginning of verse 7. You have made him for a little while lower than the angels. And of the author's comment at the end of verse 8 For we do not yet. See all things subjected to him. But there's hope. Why does does he speak of the world to come? Verse 5. Why does he say that we do not yet see all things subjected to him? Verse 8. It's because while we do not yet see the fulfillment of God's promise. We do see Jesus. Who is the redeemer and the rescuer of a frustrated humanity. Okay, so since the first Adam sinned and plunged all of his descendants, all of humanity into frustration and corruption and ruin. God sent his eternal son into the world as the second Adam to enter into our frustration, to enter into our suffering, to bear our iniquity and to die our death. So verse 9 says, Okay? We don't yet see the glory which will be ours in the world to come. But we do see Him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor so that by the grace of God, He might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for Him from whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory To perfect the author of their salvation through suffering. I want to summarize those two verses for you. The second portion of the passage. You'll see it there for you on the back of the bulletin. The author says that by his incarnation. Which we're going to talk about next week. Jesus entered into the fullness of human existence. And he identified with our weaknesses and our trials and our temptations and our limitations. In other words, he was made for a little while like us. That is, lower than the angels. By his obedience, Jesus succeeded where the first Adam failed. He submitted himself fully and completely to the will of the Father and thereby merited the eternal blessing of life and glory. He was made perfect through sufferings. By his death... Jesus took upon Himself our iniquity and He bore our curse and He absorbed in Himself the wrath of God that was due us for our sins. By the grace of God, He has tasted death for everyone. And finally, by His resurrection, He was crowned with glory and honor for He had completed the obedience on the cross and had fulfilled all righteousness in our place and had succeeded where the first Adam had failed. You see what the author's doing? Do you see the connection between verses 9 and 10 and the quotation from Psalm 8? The author of Hebrews has just placed Jesus of Nazareth smack in the middle of Psalm 8 as the link between God's original design and man's future destiny. He's just presented Jesus as the perfect man, the second Adam, who is the covenant head of a new and redeemed race, who by faith will inherit the kingdom of God that was forfeited in the fall. Who by faith will reign upon the earth in a way that Adam and Eve were supposed to, but couldn't. The author is presenting Jesus as our perfect representative before God. In Jesus, the perfect man, the second Adam, a frustrated and accursed humanity is represented and redeemed and restored to the place of glory and honor and dominion that was ours before Genesis 3. And will be ours again at the coming of our Lord. This is how God is bringing many sons to glory. He sent the author of our salvation to stand In our place and to walk in our footsteps, to eat and to sleep, to hunger and to thirst and to laugh and to cry and to suffer and to die just like us. And from his incarnation and birth to his suffering and death, he was made like his brethren in all things, verse 18, including temptation. And so was perfectly fit, he was perfectly qualified. To represent us. Which is the meaning of verse 10. When it says he was made perfect through sufferings. It's not that Jesus was somehow morally imperfect. Before his incarnation. It's not that he somehow needed improvement in his nature. But rather it's that our representative. Our second Adam needed to enter into the fullness of. Of human existence. He needed to endure temptation like the first Adam had. And he needed to succeed and obey through the temptation as the first Adam had not. He needed to overcome in the Garden of Gethsemane where the first Adam had failed in the Garden of Eden. He's the link between the original design and the future destiny. He is the one. And the one alone who is able to bring many sons to glory. And the result of the obedience of the second Adam is the creation of a new humanity. A new creation, a new family. Did you know that that's what God is doing? God is creating a family That's why the the focus of the book of Galatians, in our study of Galatians, God doesn't want servants. He's not throwing out a help-wanted ad. He doesn't want slaves. He wants sons. He wants children. This is a family meal that you are going to be invited to. Jesus wants brethren. And he's going to get them. You cannot escape the family language that permeates the last four verses. Just follow along with me and I'll highlight it for you. For it was fitting for him, God, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren saying i will proclaim your name to my brethren in the midst of the congregation i will sing your praise and again i will put my trust in him and again behold i am the children whom god has given me i want to take you one last time back to the beginning back to genesis 1 and show you how jesus is doing what adam could not You remember that the Lord formed the first Adam out of the dust of the earth and he fashioned him. He fashioned him into the image of God and he breathed into him the breath of life. And Adam became a living being and God blessed him and he gave him a mandate. And he said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the works of my hands. But the first Adam failed and God's design was frustrated. But the Lord's sovereign plan was not and could not be defeated. He sent forth His eternal Son who was not fashioned into the image of God, who is in Himself the image of God, who who did not have to have life breathed into Him such that He became a living being, but who is Himself the way and the truth and the life and the author of salvation. And He sent His Son to redeem men and women out of Adam's fallen race and to represent them in His obedience and in His sufferings and to create a new race, a redeemed race, a new creation, a family. And in so doing, do you see it? The second Adam, who is Jesus, is doing exactly what God told the first Adam to do. He's being fruitful and He's multiplying. And He's filling the earth. Every tribe, tongue, people, nation. And they are subduing it. They will reign over the works of His hands. Fear not, little flock, for the Father is well pleased to give you the kingdom. He's doing Genesis 1. Because the first Adam did not. God has many sons that He is bringing to glory through faith in Christ. And therefore, the Son... Who sanctifies, that is who sets apart sinners by his redeeming work. And the sons of God who are sanctified, that is who are set apart and redeemed, are all from one Father. Which is why Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers. And there's a second bit of good news that some of you need to lay hold of this morning. Jesus is not ashamed of you. He's not ashamed to call you his brother. He's not ashamed to stand at the at the end before before God and say, behold, I am the children whom you have given me. He's not ashamed of what he did to purchase you. You are not a disappointment to him. Verses 12 and 13 are Old Testament quotations, which the author marshals as support for the triumph of the second Adam, who by his incarnation and work of redemption has produced this new and redeemed humanity. Verse 12, the quotation there comes from Psalm 22. It's a psalm which vividly portrays the suffering and death of the Messiah by means of a crucifixion. They've pierced my hands and my feet, it says. And then his subsequent triumph in resurrection and exaltation. And verse 22 comes at the tipping point. In verse 22, the... the the narrator of the psalm has experienced the suffering and he's been crucified and he has died and now he begins to overcome and it's pointing to resurrection and triumph. And the sense of the psalm and the sense of its use here in Hebrews 2 is that having represented us upon the cross, having tasted death for us, Jesus is now alive and he is risen and he is exalted and he is proclaiming the good news of his grace to the brethren. I will proclaim Your name in the midst of the congregation. And this was exactly what Jesus did after his resurrection, right? He appeared to Peter. And he appeared to the twelve. And he appeared to 501 times. And that's what he's still doing every time the gospel is proclaimed. He is proclaiming his name among the brethren. And then the second quotation, verse 13 comes from Isaiah 8, verses 17 and 18. Isaiah 8 is a section... That contains ominous warnings of impending judgment. And hope filled promises of salvation for a remnant from that judgment. And in this particular section of Isaiah's prophecy. Isaiah stands as the father of sorts. Of an elect remnant. Who are preserved from the coming judgment by faith in God's saving promise. And so when Isaiah in Isaiah 8.17 says I will trust I will put my trust in the Lord. The author of Hebrews sees Isaiah as a type or a shadow of, of Jesus. Who trusted in God's promise of salvation even through the agony of the cross. And who now stands as the father, the covenant head over an elect remnant. The second quotation, behold I and the children whom God has given me. Isaiah 8.18 The author of Hebrews sees in that Jesus. Jesus who at the end of the age will stand as the head of a new humanity, a new family made up of believing men and women from every tribe and tongue and people and nation who will inherit the kingdom that's been prepared for them from the foundations of the earth and who will reign with Christ our Savior, Christ our elder brother over all things, including the angels, forever and ever. This passage, these nine verses, span the entirety of, of human history past present and future and it shows a redemptive plan that far from being defeated will triumph over every force arrayed against it and what i'm going to invite you to now is i'm going to invite you to a precursor of what we've read see at the end of the age the glory that has been spoken of here in Revelation is also spoken of as a supper, a banquet, a family meal to which the children of God are invited. And we have just a token of that. We have a precursor of that. We have a taste of that presented for us this morning. And so as you prepare to come to the Lord's table and to receive of the supper, I want to remind you of two Strong truths to guide your meditation as you receive these signs of the new covenant. Two things I want to be mulling around in your mind as you receive of the bread and the cup. First is this. As you take the bread and the cup, which represents the body and the blood of the Lord, I want you to remember that it is by the grace of God that Jesus has tasted death, not just for everyone, but for you in particular. At the cross, Jesus tasted the bitter cup of God's wrath against your sin and he, he drank every last drop of God's righteous anger in order that you may drink of the cup of his everlasting blessing. And so when you receive the cup and the bread as a sign and a seal of God's promise to you, you should receive this as a token from the hand of God. The nail-pierced hand of Christ Himself as a sign. I have tasted death that you might taste of life. Receive it as such. That's how it's intended. Second is this. As you take the bread and the cup, I want you to remember the destiny that awaits you as a child of God. Hebrews 2.10 says that it was God's purpose in redemption to bring many sons to glory. And therefore, it was fitting for him to perfect the author of our salvation through suffering. So you should receive this bread and this cup as a sign and seal to you of God's promise that he is bringing you to glory. The broken body and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, who is the second Adam, has infallibly secured your glorification. You're going to make it. No matter what circumstances in which you find yourself this morning. No matter what bodily, psychological, spiritual tribulations are afflicting you. This bread and this cup are tokens of God's promise to you. That in Christ by faith you will inherit the kingdom prepared for you from before the foundations of the earth. So I invite you to come. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And as a minister of his gospel. I invite you to come. And to eat. And to drink of these signs of God's grace towards us in Christ. Who is the second Adam. And as we partake of them in faith. We'll pray together. That God would make them a means of grace. And pour that grace out upon all who eat. And upon all who drink. That our faith and our hope and our joy. May be made full. At this time, I'm going to ask if the deacons who are going to help us serve will come. And as they're coming, I want to remind you that this supper is not for everybody. This is a family meal. And as such, it is for the children of God. What is a child of God? Or rather, who is a child of God? A child of God is someone who by grace has received Christ as Lord and Savior. They have put all of their hope of salvation in Him. When they stand before the throne of God in judgment, they will have no other plea but that. But that then Christ has shed His blood for our sins and has granted us His righteousness. I've got no other hope than Jesus